As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. On the eve of his first anniversary in charge, Unai Emery has Aston Villa within touching distance of the top of the Premier League. On Sunday, they made it 11 straight home wins in the Premier League. So how has the Spaniard completely turned around Villa's fortunes and rebuilt his own reputation in English football in the process? Blues ring around, half empty. Emirates, seven games without a win. It's Arsenal's worst run since 1992. I'm Michael Bailey. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. We are feeling good here at home and we are feeling something special here in Villa Park. And today was a very great match uh, with everything, uh, on the pitch, with the crowd, with the fans, and I think we have to be proud of us. With us today for the podcast, uh, we're joined by The Athletic's Adam Crafton and Greg Evans. We'll also hear from Aston Villa writer Jacob Tanswell, as well as our Arsenal writer James McNicholas. Greg, I'm going to come to you first if I can. Aston Villa, they're two points off Manchester City, who are, of course, top of the Premier League at the moment at the time of recording because Tottenham play on Monday night and they could go top. But Villa have 19 points from nine games. Their 4-1 win over West Ham makes it 11 straight home Premier League wins. How has Unai Emery turned Villa Park into such a fortress for them? Yes, it's a pretty incredible transformation, isn't it? Because if you think back to a year ago, almost to the day, Villa were kind of headed towards rock bottom and the fans had turned again. Um, And Stephen Gerrard was getting hounded out of the club after a 3-0 loss at, at Fulham at Craven Cottage. And I mean, 12 months isn't really that long in football, but the the difference is incredible. Um, and I suppose to answer your question, Emery is he's doing it by being probably the most demanding um, and intense manager some of these players have ever worked with. And it's all pretty new to them, or certainly it was when when he first took over. Four home wins and scoring seventeen goals as well. So this is this is a team that is that has got a lot of attacking potency in it. Yeah, look, they're, they're just a really fun, enjoyable watch at the moment. And look, if you're a supporter of Aston Villa, you, you want to go to the games and be entertained. And they are now. They're getting it right at both ends of the pitch. They're, they're not conceding too many goals. Um, 
but they're, the fact that they're scoring quite a lot and the goals have been shared all between the, the team, you know, it's the best thing. And I, I was talking to a couple of my Villa supporting friends this morning. I just said to them, it feels like there's a real band of brothers there. There's no sort of standout player. Everybody has their, their own value in their team. They're all fighting for each other. And I said, you know, is there a particular player really that's that's impressing you the most? Who's the the real fans favourite in, in that group? And he said, well, we could name five or six of them because you know, they're all performing so well. And I think that's what was really key. You know, when Villa lost Jack Grealish a couple of seasons ago, there had to be a bit of a shift, uh, a move away from one player dominating proceedings and a lot of pressure on him to to drag the team out of trouble when they were in it. And it just feels now that Villa can lose a couple of players. You know, you've got to look at the fact that they're doing this without Emmy Wendia, without Tyrone Mings, two, two big performers over the last couple of seasons. Um, and players are coming in just doing the job. So, yeah, it's working really well for them. You touched on there, Greg, about how bad it looked a year ago. Can you just go a little deeper on what that was? I think obviously Stephen Gerrard had lost his way completely. What sort of a state were Villa in at that point? Do we have to? I mean, I've almost erased this, erased this out of my memory. <laughs> that was, having covered Villa for yeah, almost a decade, that was prob- that was up there one of the you know the worst nights sort of covering the club just because of the hostility from from the from the fans towards the manager you know you didn't expect to see what is you know a premier league legend being you know abused almost in that way it was that bad you know villa had struggled to pick up points uh, under him that clearly the players weren't performing for him no more there was a a real lack of direction and you know i remember ollie watkins who isn't the most vocal of players he was almost pulling the players together to try and get some, you know, sense of direction because there was nothing coming from the bench on that night. Um, and yeah, you know, the circumstances that followed, Christian Perslow, the CEO, sacked Stephen Gerrard within the stadium and he had to go back on the team bus with the players knowing that his time at Villa was no more. So yeah, Villa were, Villa were in the relegation zone at that point and now they're two points off the top of the table. So it's been some 12 months. Adam, this is Inunai Emery, a manager who last time in England at Arsenal. I think most people have a certain perception of how that went. From you looking uh, from the outside in at what he's doing at Villa, does it seem like he's changed or, or learned from that Arsenal experience? I'm not sure he's changed particularly in that time. I actually covered Arsenal during that time. Um, and I was I went on his first pre-season tour with Arsenal when they were out in Singapore. And you know a lot of the things that he was saying then, he still says, now and those things Greg says about being, you know, demanding and studious and players being a bit surprised by the level of detail that, that not only he goes into but they're expected to buy into and know about, I think is quite, quite distinguishing. I always felt at Arsenal, I think there were, sev- there were several issues. I think there were some communication issues both externally and, inst- and internally at the time, but there were also ju- just the circumstances of replacing. Arsene Wenger and, and Arsenal at that time being a really, really difficult club to manage. I remember, I think in his first, certainly in his first season, there was a run of like nine or 10 games where he won consecutively. And there were periods of that where Arsenal played as good a football as any time I've seen in the past decade. They went to Fulham and won 5-1. They beat Leicester at home. Ozil was unbelievable that night. So I don't think he has necessarily changed. I think he's probably just at the right kind of club for him which is almost pushing upwards, being that kind of a little bit more plucky, right? That's what he's had success with in the past in his career, whether you look at 
you know, Villarreal or uh, Sevilla. Like that's the kind of size of club I think that that really suits him. When he's gone to that superstar level at PSG or Arsenal, he's found it a lot more difficult for his methods to succeed. Greg, you've you've raved about the job Unai Emery has done so far, but can you remember what your initial thoughts were when it became clear he was going to be the new Aston Villa manager? Yeah, I mean, look, I was excited for for Villa because clearly at that point <laughs> they needed somebody to to come in and save them, and I thought that. As Adam said, you know, a manager who had done good things at a at clubs of a similar size. You know, if you if you look back quite a while ago now, but if you look back to the work that he did at Valencia, you know, he made them mm. clearly the third best team in in Spain behind behind uh, Barcelona and, and Real Madrid, who were married managed by Mourinho and, and Guardiola at that point. And then we'd seen some of the success that he had with Sevilla, uh, obviously taking Villarreal to to a Champions League semi final. So. It was just exciting to see if he could get on one of these runs with Villa, perhaps win win them or get them deep into a, a domestic cup competition, or take them into Europe. And and the fact that he, it's just it's just still quite crazy, really, to think that they were you know genuine relegation candidates at that point when he took over, and they ended up finishing seventh, and are now one of the favourites to to go on and win the Europa Conference League and perhaps get into Europe this year through another method anyway. Greg, is he is he is he is he still really, really big on the video analysis side of things? There's some, there's some amazing stories, particularly like when he was at Valencia and PSG, about sort of I think there was a player that once said that he'd given him so many videos that he'd run out of popcorn watching the videos. There was another player who had been given these this USB stick to go and watch some highlights. And then at, tr- at the training ground, Emery said, Oh, what did you think of the USB stick that I gave you with all these clips on. And the player said, oh, yeah, yeah, really interesting. Like, I really took this away from it. And Emery was like, oh, right, okay. Well, there was actually nothing on the (laughs) USB stick. I was just checking, you know, if you're actually watching it. So is he still very much using those kind of methods or is it more training ground focused? What's How's he going about this? Yeah, it, the, the video sessions are um, a, a bit of a running joke, you know, within the club that the players right. sort of know that they're going to be summoned to very, very long meetings and some individual meetings as well. I think one of the key additions that Emery made when he brought, when he came to Villa was was hiring a guy called Rodri, um, who's an individual coach. And he sometimes gets overlooked in all this, but he's done a lot of video analysis with um, with individual players and help the likes of Ollie Watkins and, and Douglas Louise improve their games in various areas. But what Emery was able to do last year very well was almost manage Saturday to Saturday because that those were the only games Villa were playing. So he had a very long time in between games to prepare for the next game and really hone in on a specific game plan and look to expose certain weaknesses in, in opponents. I thought this was going to be more difficult for them this year, even though Emery's used to doing the sort of Thursday-Sunday routine. I just thought it would be a bit more difficult for Villa to maintain a form in the Premier League and do well in Europe. But so far, they're kind of managing it quite well. Um, but yeah, I think most of the players, some of the longer-serving ones now, are just used to those those video sessions. And look, it was very important that when he first came in, Villa got results on the back of those because he could have quickly lost those players. If you're having to go through two or three video sessions every week before games and then you lose it, you're slowly going to get frustrated with the manager and just not want to play for him. But fortunately, Villa got the buy-in because they got the results. I remember debating at the time actually how good the Aston Villa squad was that Steven Gerrard had to work with and, and the one that Unai Emery was taking on. One example of that, and the development is is Ollie Watkins. You mentioned him um, a moment ago, Greg. I, I guess a, a head coach can show 
their greatest assets by developing players with ones that are already there that have worked under other managers and are then developed uh, into something better. Yeah, I think so. And he's, his story's a little bit well told now because, you know, he's been interviewed a lot and, and in front of the cameras, etc. The main difference is really in his game is that before under Dean Smith and uh, Stephen Gerrard, he used to run into the flanks a little bit more and be a little bit more selfless and work very hard for the team. Now he specifically stays within the width of the box, you know, in the, the, the white lines that, that doesn't know that. And he's finding that he's getting more goals through that. And that was a specific ploy from Emery. He took him aside with Rodri, the, the individual coach I mentioned previously. And they went through a lot of clips of Carlos Baca playing for Sevilla, Cavani at uh, PSG and Aubameyang at, at Arsenal. Strikers that, that uh, Emery had worked with before. And Emery showed him, these are the type of runs I want you to be making in my team. And if you run like this, we'll work around the fullbacks and the midfielders to get you the service that they need. And that kind of followed on with lots of other players. You know, Tyrone Mings as well was a, was a classic example. He was coming out of defence too much and trying to do too much around the midfield areas and supporting other players. Emery again said to him, you stick to your area, the left side of defence, do exactly what you've got to do and we'll get all the other players around you doing the same thing. And Ming said in an interview, you know, if, if everybody got that right, there would really be no excuse to to not go and execute the game plan. And I think that is, you know, one of the genuine reasons why Villa have been doing so well. They've worked as a collective, but individually they do each know their roles and responsibilities and more often than not, they're executing them. Football is bigger and more complicated than ever before. Just ask VAR. Check up late. It's fine. Perfect. Yeah. So the Daily Football Briefing is here to help, whether it's the World Cup. It's a kind of face-saving, everyone's happy, no one's a loser. Lionel Messi. As they say, he completed football. Or Manchester United. I mean, the performances all season have been questionable. That are making you quizzical. The Daily Football Briefing has all the answers you need for every football story that matters. And it does exactly what the name suggests. It's daily, it's brief, and it's all about football. The Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic, available wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. For more on Villa's fast start to the new season, we caught up with our Aston Villa writer, Jacob Tanswell, to get the inside track on the level of expectation at Villa Park this season. 
make no mistake about it, Emery didn't come here to Villa Park especially to play second fiddle. He wants to win trophies and over the last couple of weeks he's made it very clear his aspiration is to win a cup with Villa and eventually Europa League and, and Champions League. You go around Villa Park now, the strap line is the giant is waking up. It's a pretty intimidating atmosphere and, and place for any opposition team to go and they've got 19 points now from the first nine league games. Their best record since the 1998-99 season. So this is sustained dominant progression um, from Villa and it's a world away from where he picked them up. Villa have doubled down and they've backed him in that. Em- it is Emery's club now. He-, he runs it, he makes the final decision and everything. The interesting thing is that he doesn't get involved in anything off the field. He's in his own immersive bubble. He focuses solely on performance, on pitch, developing his tactical structure. The rest of it uh, is trusted friends and, and people in the hierarchy. Monchi, obviously, is coming from Sevilla in the summer, and his close friend and personal assistant, Damien Vidigani, who we interviewed a couple of weeks ago, who explained it very, very well. But make no mistake, Emery has brought an increased level of expectation. He always talks about it in every press conference about players need a strong mentality and just accompanying them on the ride to Europa League, to Champions League eventually. And they need to have that mentality because he wants to go home or away. He wants to play in Europe Thursday, Sunday. He wants all these games, but he wants consistency. This is a really exciting time for Villa. Everything's going up, you know, high tides lift all boats and, and Emery's certainly lifting everything at the moment around Villa Park. Thanks for that, Jacob. It's an interesting one, Greg, with how Villa have altered a lot behind the scenes to give Unai Emery the best possible structure to be a success? How have they changed and altered to do that? Yeah, it's, it's a really valid point and something I've brought up on a few different occasions in, in articles I've written for The Athletic. And I I just feel that without some of the departments in place, Emery wouldn't have been able to come into Villa and thrive in the way that he did. I think there's a lot of hard work that's gone on behind the scenes. Uh, previously, the, through Christian Perslow, the the, C, the former CEO, and, and Johan Langer, the board and direct, the ex-born director who's now now joined Tottenham. The two of them, alongside the um, enthused and engaged, and engaged ownership of, of Nassif Sawaris and Wes Edens, really put the building blocks in place and they built up a lot of the infrastructure around around the club and almost just modernized it you know it was this was a this was a club remember that had had spent three years in the championship they were dreaming big about not only returning to the premier league but becoming a real force again but any club that has been down into the championship knows how hard it knows how long and hard it, it is to to rebuild because every year you're in there you're almost you're losing out aren't you to to the to the other clubs and and the big six are always getting bigger and you know they're constantly getting the Champions League money and bigger revenues, et cetera, and better spark, uh, sponsorship deals. It's really important for Villa to rebuild areas of the training ground to focus on some of the different sections of the of the club. So, like, they didn't even have a loans department, for example. And, it, you know, players were coming in and out, but they were never properly managed. The player care department, I've spoken about, run by a guy called Phil Roscoe, and he's helped players and staff who have come into the club really settle in and, and previously Villa didn't have that type of setup and just some of the data analysis uh, that, that goes into you know bringing players into the club um, has really helped you know Moussa Diaby a £50 million signing Unai Emery actually identified Nico Williams at, at Bill Bowers the player that he wanted to bring in um, as when, when Villa were looking for a new winger this season but 
when he wanted to consider some alternatives, he, he went to the data team and spoke to them at length and, and they brought up some options and, and uh, Diaby was one of those. And, and then collectively, they all decided to to sign him. So, you know, you've got guys like Rob McKenzie, who is the, the longest serving head of recruitment, and he's actually worked quite hard to build some of this squad together. So that's what I always say. You know, Emery came in and added the elite level coaching that they needed, but some of the departments were already in place. I think people do forget, though, with Aston Villa, I think with some of the other teams that spend a lot of money, like Villa have spent a lot, right, over the past few years. They've invested a huge amount of money. It's become normal to see Aston Villa buy players for 30, 40 million in a way that would have been unthinkable a few years ago. Now, I know, obviously, you throw the Jack Grealish sale into that, but that doesn't explain all of it. You know, they don't seem to have been under pressure to have sold, you know, a Douglas Louise or a McGinn or a Buendia or a Mings, you know, they've really been, or Emmy Martinez, right? He goes and wins the World Cup, but the club didn't seem to really be under any pressure to, to let these players go. So clearly the level of investment is, is a lot. Is, is there any pressure, Greg, from a, like a financial fair play point of view for the next cup? Because I'm kind of wondering, Villa are clearly pushing at that door to get into the top five, top four, but would they be able to go again in January if they were you know, thinking maybe we can have a real crack at this. Yeah, financial fair play is an issue for them. You know, they've clearly had to look at it. Um, from conversations I had leading up into the into the summer, it was more a case of do we sell a, a first team player for relatively big money, as as you know, you've just mentioned Adam, potentially a Martinez or a, a Matty Cash or a Douglas Louise, um, and then reinvest some of that money back in. They decided ultimately that they wanted to keep hold of all their best players and be a little bit creative with some of their younger players, their academy graduates. And you know they moved on the likes of Aaron Ramsey for, for 14 million and Cameron Archer for, for a similar amount to Sheffield United and put buyback clauses in into their contracts, which we've seen buyback clauses, of course, you know, in Man City do it quite well, don't they? But you know, it's quite a new thing for Villa to do this. So they thought a little bit differently. Um, and went about it that way. But look, look, FFP is always going to be an issue for them because they've spent quite heavily over the years. Their wage bill's constantly going up. They're bringing players like Yuri Tillemans in, who came in on a free contract, but he's on huge money compared to what some of the players were on in previous years. So it's something they've always got to keep an eye on. How do the fans feel about the those sort of younger players, you know, I suppose, who could arguably be part of the squad? Like being, are they just thinking we're winning games? So who cares? It's, it's a yeah, it's a difficult one because there was a, a big clamour really for Cameron Archer to be given a chance, and he sort of ticked every box that that he had to. He went on loan and did all the time in the championship and scored at England under twenty one level. And he just felt like he did deserve a little bit of a run in the team. But I think ultimately, mm. the manager and and previous managers had looked at those players and thought they're not quite going to do it for us. So that's why they put the ball, uh, the buybacks in. You know, they they effectively can manage their future, and that almost appeased the fans because they they're sort of clinging on to the fact that they could still be their players in the future. And Adam Monchi has come in. He previously worked with with Emery at Sevilla. Uh, Damien Vidagani is another who arrived initially as Emery's personal assistant. I don't believe he was with Emery at either Arsenal or PSG, but he's he's now moved on as well. So he's now Aston Villa's director of footballing and seems another important figure to Emery. And just in that way that Aston Villa have embraced bringing in the people that Emery wants around him, is that maybe a differenti differentiation from his previous spell in England and, and his other spells at clubs? 
Yeah, maybe. Um, he's, he's always been allowed to build a, a kind of a coaching backroom team, but it's probably rare that, apart from Sevilla for a club, infrastructure has been built so much around the head coach. And look, when it's going well, we'll say that's absolutely brilliant. And if when it all falls apart, we'll say, well, you're all tied to the head coach. So what does the club act do next? So that's always what happened in these situations, right? And I do think the most consistent factor in successful football clubs is the, is the head coach being really good, right? And, and that's what Aston Villa have at the moment, a really, really good head coach in Emery, you know, in the same way as clearly Man City are brilliantly run from a footballing perspective. But what would it look like without Pep Guardiola at the top of that tree? But City's probably quite a good example in terms of a whole str- of a structure starting to be built really around the head coach, right? Because you look at the CEO, Ferran Soriano, the sporting director, Chiki Bagiristain, you know, big allies of Pep, people that had worked with Pep previously, a lot of people within the infrastructure that had been at Barcelona with him before. And that can create really, really good moments. As I say, when it goes well, it just creates that little bit more uncertainty if there's a downturn of form. And it's interesting in terms of like where Villa go, in terms of like what is the ceiling for Villa? Because we've seen other clubs, you know, push at this door and some clubs just, you know, they reach a point where it becomes too difficult to maintain it. I think the really, I mean, the really exciting thing from Villa's point of view is there, there is going to be this fifth Champions League place, which is, I think, a, is a massively game-changing factor for clubs like Villa, Newcastle, Brighton, Spurs, in that it, you know, it gives you a real chance of being, okay, if not every year in the Champions League, maybe one in three as a sort of a fair target and think, yeah, okay, we can get into that, but maybe another year we might finish seventh, one year we might finish fourth. But once you get into that and you start getting the revenues that come with it, then you can really, really, really kick on. And they've, they've got a manager, I think, that's capable of doing that. I don't know what you think about this. Is I do wonder about some of the players in the squad who are probably at an age where they really want to win things. And I wonder how much patience they will have to grow at the same pace as Villa. You know, I look at players like Martinez, Douglas Luiz, Ollie Watkins, Matty Cash. Like, do, do you expect them all to stay long-term, Greg? Or do you expect Villa maybe to cash in on one or two and, re- and invest smartly like, and not be scared of selling one or two players? It's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, you could add sort of Bubkar Kamara, Douglas Luiz to mm. that as well. You know, international players as well now in their own right. Pau Torres as well, who obviously has won things and just come. But I think if you look at a lot of the players that are in the Villa squad, Cash, Watkins, Mings, they've come to Villa and they've joined this project where they weren't international players and Villa have sold them this sort of dream. Come to Villa, we'll play you, we'll put you on this journey with us, we'll get you into your international teams and then perhaps go from there. So I think Villa would need to be quite clever with it and not be afraid to sell one or two in future transfer windows and back themselves to replace them adequately. Because look, that's what all big clubs do now, don't they? I think you've got to do that now, one for FFP and two, just because you've got to back yourself to get younger, better models. Do you think Villa fans are now over Grealish? They are now, yeah. Yeah, it's take, it's take, it did take them a while. And, you know, even last year, lots of Villa fans would have been looking at him um, winning the treble and, and just knowing that they couldn't compete with that. And I think that was a bit of, justification really for Grealish that you know he had to go and do that had to make that move but as I mentioned earlier yeah you you look through this Villa team and they're very close now there's not one or two standout players they're all at a very similar level and I think that's what's helping them them thrive you know they're all sort of helping each other out when's needed 
I can't believe neither of you have brought up the potential impact of winning the Europa Conference League this season. <laughs> but we saw, I mean, we saw though, didn't we, last year, right, with West Ham, how big, you know, I know we like we joke about these sort of the Europa, Europa Conference League, but like for Aston Villa, that would be massive, you know, to win a European competition, to, for the fans to have that experience, for the players actually to have that experience of winning something. It's not an easy competition to win. But, you know, you look at the teams in it and you look at the way that Aston Villa are playing in the most competitive league in, in the world and you think, well, actually Villa should, you know, should be going really, really far if they can be bothered. Unless they get to January, February and they're, you know, fourth in this Premier League table or something, then why, like, why not just go and do that? Worst case scenario, they probably end up with maybe, what, semi-finalists, but they'll still have had some great nights, quarterfinals, semi-finals at Villa Park that... That Villa fans just haven't experienced apart from what like playoff games in the last sort of 20, 30 years. And the, the FA Cup finals, obviously, which you know weren't, I suppose, pleasurable experiences in the end for them. But any anybody under sort of 32, I think, if my maths are correct, wouldn't have experienced Villa winning anything, you know, other than the other than the playoffs in the championship, which, you know, let's be honest, isn't isn't it's a great day, of course, but you know, it's not something that you're going to remember for the rest of your life when when something like an FA Cup win would be. And look, this we do laugh a little bit about the Europa Conference League, but clubs like Villa needed it. You know, they needed the European Knights. They needed the chance of going to win something. And look, if they do win it, they're guaranteed to play in the, in the Europa League next year, which will be another step up. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. Hello, guys. James McNicholas of the Athletic here. I'm speaking to you from Seville in the south of Spain, where I'm here to watch the Champions League tie tomorrow between Sevilla and Arsenal. Two clubs, of course, uh, played a significant part in the career of Unai Emery. Caught a little bit of Aston Villa's thumping win over West Ham yesterday, and obviously been paying close attention to Unai Emery's time in charge at Villa. And he seems to be doing incredibly well. Inevitably for Arsenal fans, that gives them sort of some pause for introspection and you reflect on his time as Arsenal manager. I think he came into the club at a very difficult time. Arsene Wenger had left after two decades at the helm and there was always a sense that being the next man after Wenger was always a bit of a poison chalice, you know, not unlike David Moyes taking over from Alex Ferguson at Manchester United. Immediately he had issues with his communication and that was difficult, I think, for Unai and for everyone around him because he is a communicator. Speaking to people who've worked with him closely, he's someone who's quite verbose, who has a lot of ideas that he wants to get across. And he was robbed of that a little bit at Arsenal. But I think what hurt him most is that he came to Arsenal, he succeeded Arsene Wenger, who'd been the manager, and he was the head coach. 
What that meant was that he focused very squarely on his immediate task, coaching the team, training the team, preparing the team. And a lot of the stuff outside of that, things that had previously been part of Wenger's role, he left to others. And I think Emery focused so closely on the tactical side, the match-by-match -match preparation, that he didn't necessarily build great relationships at London Colney. It's not that he was unpopular, it was that because he was so focused on the immediacy of his task, he didn't build the strong relationships that can sustain a manager when things start to go wrong. Adam, a lot of early optimism at Arsenal uh, under Unai Emery. That was there and obviously didn't quite pan out in the long run. It doesn't, at the moment, feel like it's going to unravel quite like that at Villa. No, and you know, a year into his time, Aston Villa, very different story to Arsenal. I don't really think there's, we can almost make very many comparisons. Same as PSG. You know, PSG, he found it really tough because of his style where it's a, it's a bit like when, you know, Rafa Benitez went to a, a Real Madrid or Chelsea as well to a certain extent. I know he obviously won the Europa League there, but when you're trying to be so on top of players and superstars don't like it. Neymar, who was, you know, flying back to Brazil for parties and all this kind of stuff and organising barbecues and, and, and whatnot, like just wasn't particularly, didn't want that style of management, right? He wanted the arm around the shoulder and go out and enjoy yourself approach that he might have got from, I'm simplifying it, but, you know, someone like a Carlo Ancelotti or, or, or a manager like that. Emery's a very different mould. And that's why I said, you know, at the start of this, that I just think he's so much better suited to a club that wants to go somewhere, that wants to climb the mountain rather than a club that already kind of sees itself being somewhere near the top of the mountain, that project which he's trying to do at Villa. And I think it's also the reason why, you know, if you remember, he nearly went to Newcastle before Eddie Howe went there. It was almost done and then he backed out right at the end. But actually, you could have imagined him doing a very similar job to the one that Eddie Howe's done at Newcastle. Right, very similar. Yeah, I think pretty similar approaches. I don't think the style of football is so different. It's intensity, it's hard work, a bit of flair when you get the opportunity, good investment. So I, th I think from a Villa point of view, it's just hugely exciting. And I just don't think the Arsenal experience really bears any resemblance when you look at Emery's career as a whole. I think we're far more. It's far more useful to look at the Valencia example, the Sevilla example, the Villarreal example, the example. Uh, to see what this is and where it can go. But I think the important thing to remember for Villa is, despite what I said about like a trophy would be nice, the far bigger achievement for Villa would be getting into the Champions League. I, I really, you know, I really do think that would be a massively game-changing for the next decade of Aston Villa. You know, whereas one Europa Conference League would be great and would make him a bit of a legend in his own right, Aston Villa. But if you really want to change what Aston Villa is and the way it's perceived across Europe, finding a way to finish fourth or fifth this season, which I think is really possible, the way that you know Chelsea are going, the way Man United are going, you know, will Tottenham sustain what they're doing? Will Newcastle be able to sustain what they're doing? Like, there's a real opportunity there beyond City and Liverpool to be in that mix. Villa's next five games on paper in the Premier League are pretty nice, right? They've got I think Luton, Forest. Uh, Fulham, Bournemouth, and there's a Spurs Spurs game in there as well, and that gives them a, a proper chance of getting towards Christmas, and everyone looking at them and thinking, 
Right. Okay. They're a serious team. Adam, do, just to follow up on the point you said about uh, Emery m- managing, you know, the very elite players and, and his style, do, do you think that that rules him out in a lot of the very elite club's minds of appointing him again? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I, I think probably a more disqualifying factor is that he's kind of had his chances at Arsenal and PSG. And he wasn't a failure, right? It wasn't a di- total disaster or anything like that. Certainly not at PSG. But I think teams would be a little bit reluctant, perhaps, you know, just because of those experiences that that teams have had. And I also just get the sense that he enjoys working with players that he sees a greater potential for improvement. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of what kind of size club could end up going for him. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, and it's also not true to say, you know, big players don't want demanding managers, right? Look at Guardiola, look at Klopp. I think it's just Guardiola has, has reached such a level that no player could ever turn around to him and say, I'm not going to learn from you in a way in which Emery may be still at that very, very highest level still has to prove it to players slightly more than a Guardiola or Klopp. Greg, Unai Emery coming into Villa, it felt like a big appointment. Was there always a feeling that this would be a long-term project for Emery as well or a chance to look beyond at the next appointment that may come as a result of it? I think managers now, the sensible and clever ones anyway, are always looking at their next job. They, they, They have to, else they're going to get left behind. And he would have come into Villa knowing that it was an exciting and ambitious project and that he probably couldn't do any worse than what had already happened. Um, and if he were, if he did, then he wouldn't be getting, you know, he'd have bigger problems anyway. But I think he was genuinely excited about it and still is, um, but has also got eyes on the future of, you know, what that might be. Because there are two huge clubs in in Spain still that and potentially three that he that he hasn't and could manage you know other clubs in the premier league that will that will certainly interest him but i just think for now he's he's really he's really tuned into it at villa and 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 wants to see where they can go and look he spoke this weekend he just said my long term dream still is to win the champions league so you know a lot of managers will say that but he genuinely believes that he's got a chance and can do it so you know whether that's with aston villa highly unlikely i'd say at this point but never out of anything um so you know he's clearly thinking about his future at some point as well i mean adam it can be hard not to be cynical uh sometimes we had a a nice uh, juxtaposition i suppose at at villa park where we had uh, unai emery who some see as a failure at arsenal and david moyes who some see as a failure at manchester united and in some ways those two Hey, coaches are also, you know, they won't ever shake that tag almost. Whereas no one sort of looks at it and goes, well, those guys will have learned such a huge amount from those two jobs where it was hardly all on them that it didn't work out. Yeah. And I think a really good example of this is what's happening at Newcastle. Eddie Howe, you know, when he was out of work, everyone was like, oh, he's the guy that got Bournemouth relegated rather than thinking he's the guy that got Bournemouth up several divisions, kept them in the league, and then. Eventually, it just reached the end of its cycle and they had one bad year and they went down. You know, I look at some of the clubs that could have hired him in that time. So, you know, I remember Everton being linked to him, for example, and people slightly turning up their nose. I think he was an Everton fan as well. You know, now you look and think, God, maybe Everton fans wish that appointment had happened a couple of years ago. Celtic, he was close to at one point as well. I think that's something we often do as society. We label people by the worst things that have happened to them rather than 
you know, all the good things. Equally, you know, if I was a CEO of a big six club or a champ or a Real Madrid, Barcelona, I wouldn't hire David Moyes. Right? Like, you know, I think certain managers are suited to different to different levels, and that David Moyes is at the right place for him, which is still a ridiculously high level where he's incredibly well paid and has a very good reputation. And I think I think very similarly of Emery that he is at the right level for him. Where and Yes, okay, these these guys can be ambitious and say they want to crack at the highest level and all this sort of stuff. But like sometimes like you're just at the right place for you and embrace that and make the most of it and do something special there, which I think Villa this season have the opportunity to do. Thank you so much, Adam and Greg. Also to Jacob and James for their contributions today. Don't forget you can sign up to The Athletic today for a special limited time offer of just one ninety nine a month for 12 months at theathletic.com forward slash football pod thanks for listening and bye for now you've been listening to the athletic football podcast the producers were adonis pratsides and guy clark with additional production by mike stavro and jay beal the executive producer was ad moorhead to listen to other great athletic football podcasts for free search for the athletic on apple spotify and all the usual places and head to theathletic.com slash football pod for the very latest subscription offers the athletic football podcast is an athletic media company production The Athletic.